I will say this about the player though. It was like the first time I've ever seen it. And I kind of knew it was like a black comedy satire about Hollywood. But I have to say, I think maybe it's just like when I watched it, like what age I watched it. But I almost think I prefer Bowfinger over the player. Have you ever seen the Bowfinger? No, I've never seen Bowfinger. Okay, okay. So it's it's another one of those like uh, movies, comedies, satirizing Hollywood. Uh, starring Steve Martin and Eddie Murphy in like multiple roles again. Oh yeah, and it's like super slapstick. It's way more lowbrow, right? And maybe because I watched it as a kid and I thought it was hilarious, um, that stuck with me a little bit more than the player. There were certain parts of the player that I thought were offbeat, but I think that was done on purpose. Yeah, so we'll we'll have to get into that. But it's interesting that you that you've already identified a another movie with similar themes, but you're thinking about like, you know, since this movie is older than Bowfinger, it would be interesting if like this came out when it did and you happen to be the right like target age. Yeah, I agree. Because like I was like three when this came out. You were what, like four or five? Something like that. So if we were the right age, say like 20 somethings plus when this came out, would we have preferred this to Bowfinger? Would we have found Bowfinger like stupid comedy or something yeah i think so and i think with the player at least you needed a little little more like inside hollywood knowledge to really get a hold of everything because there there were a ton of cameos i did not expect that Welcome to another bonus episode of the Extra Buttery Podcast. This time, we're talking all about The Player from 1992, which is a movie starring Tim Robbins as a semi-washed-up film studio executive who's worried about his career, and somehow it spirals into a dark web of murder and extortion and... Lots of Insider Studio references and Hollywood cameos, a combo that you probably can't find in many other places in, in movies these days. So it seemed like a, a very interesting topic for one of these bonus episodes. And so far on, on Extra Buttery Bonus, we've done a lot of like genre stuff. We did maximalist action with True Lies. We did, we did sci-fi with Gattaca. In the last episode, we were talking superhero origin stories with LXG. So now we've we kind of changed gears and we're going into this black comedy type stuff. Had you heard of this movie before I brought it up as a possibility for a bonus episode? I had heard of it because it's a Robert Altman film, but I've never seen it or heard anyone talk about it. So I came in pretty damn blind. Right. And I, I, I think I came into it when I first got it. It was a total fluke. I was, I was sent... The Blu-ray for this movie, the Criterion Edition, by accident, <laughs> and it, came, it was like somebody else's order, and I was like, "Okay, cool. I will. Uh, I've never heard of this before. Uh-huh. I gotta." Uh, but it, it ended up being a very enjoyable watch for me. I ended up like it was one of my like more highly rated movies that I saw four years ago. I think when I when I first got it, I feel like this is way up your alley. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, I, I acknowledge that like it's a bit of a me pick, uh, mostly because like. As we've discussed before, 
I was very much in the minority in terms of like the kind of target audience for something like Mank in that I've mm-hmm. l- researched and read about and listened to a lot of stuff all about the way Hollywood works on the inside. I'm still by no means an expert. There's all sorts of nuances that you could never get unless you actually live there and are part of the industry. Um, but still, I felt this, uh, I don't know, the, this kind of like knowing kind of glance being thrust my way throughout the, the whole uh, plot of this movie. The Graduate, part two. And Mrs. Robinson had a stroke so she can't talk. It's going to be funny? Yeah, it'll be funny. Griffin Mill is a hotshot studio executive. Yes. Angelica, Griffin Mill. Oh, hi. Good to see you. Malcolm McDowell. Hi, how are you? Hi, Bert. Good oh, to see you. Good to see you. He's heard every pitch. Yeah, it's exactly right. It's Out of Africa meets Pretty Woman. But uh, do you want to give us like a quick little plot uh, summary uh, before we go too far? Sure, sure, yeah. So Tim Robbins plays uh, Griffin Mill, who is this uh, movie executive uh head like head of a big movie studio he meets with writers all the time and because of the nature of his job he has to turn down a lot of them and he's kind of like this hot shot and he has a bit of an attitude he's a bit of a player in the sense that he is very charismatic around the women and he knows how to play studio execs off each other right uh, to gain the upper hand so what happens is one of the writers that he turns down ends up sending him death threats through postcards. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't know who it is, but he surmises it's this guy named um, David Kahane. And so he goes to confront David Kahane, and they have an altercation and basically accidentally drowns him in a puddle. Played by a very young Vincent D'Onofrio, in fact. I ha- I could not recognize him. I saw the cast list and I was like, that was D'Onofrio? But he's like a chameleon to me anyway. So he's he's like slowly really like climbing up the ranks in terms of actors who I really appreciate because of how versatile he is. But anyway, so Griffin Mill quickly realizes that he's killed the wrong guy because he keeps getting these death threats. And... There's a subplot involving a rival up-and-coming executive in the same studio played by Peter Gallagher named Larry Levy. And so Griffin Mill has this ultimate plot where, you know, he gets rid of this uh, writer that keeps threatening him and somehow beats Levy in gaining this movie executive position that he really wants. Right, right. And they the whole time he's he's not quite sure who is chasing after him, but yet he starts falling in love with the girlfriend of David Kahane, the guy that he killed accidentally, um, which adds this whole romantic subplot to it. Right. And and definitely yeah. like a, a strong dose of film noir. It's got that kind of sense of like the detective who falls in love with the uh, femme fatale that shows up in his office mm-hmm. kind of mm-hmm. thing. It has it has that sort of that that sort of flavor to it. Um, but when it's not dealing with the the core plot with Griffin Mill, it's just sliding in all of these uh, references to the bizarre way that Hollywood conducts itself. And I just I just loved some of those moments, like the <laughs> how you'll have actors turn up for the actors and producers will turn up for breakfasts and lunches together. And they have say like maybe five words back and forth to each other. And that's business. That's the way they conduct business. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's kind of a sense of like people introducing themselves to each other cold. And then another person turns to their dinner guest after the person's gone on and says, 
who is that person? I don't even know who that is. Yeah, totally. <laughs> but Burt, Burt Reynolds is a great scene like that where he's like, he, he just has to like play it nice with Griffin Mill when he shows up at breakfast one day. And, and then Burt Reynolds is like, who is that guy? He's an asshole. <laughs> Apparently he uh, ad-libbed that line. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's actually one of the weird things about this movie is that a lot of these cameos are uncredited. So not only is, you know, uh, Angelica Huston in there, John Cusack, very young Julia Roberts, Bruce Willis. It's like sprinkled throughout. Yeah. So when Whoopi Goldberg turns up as the detective who is investigating the murder of David Kahane, it took me like a moment to orient myself thinking that she wasn't playing Whoopi Goldberg. She was playing a character and some I actually had to pause it because there's a scene, I think when her character is introduced, where she comes into Griffin Mill's office and notices he has an Oscar on his shelf and lifts it up and comments about how heavy it is. Funnily enough, Whoopi won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actress the year before this movie came out. (laughs) So in real life, Whoopi knows very well how heavy an Oscar is, but still she has to pretend, her character has to pretend like she's never held one before. Yeah, so uh, there are a couple moments like that where, you know, a really famous face I recognize wasn't playing themselves or it wasn't a cameo in it. It kind of threw me off a little bit just for that reason. Um, because if you look at the cast, it's like star-studded, eh? Yeah. yeah. Like Greta Shaki uh, as June, Griffin Mill's new girlfriend. There's also Richard E. Grant, Sidney Pollock, uh, Lyle Lovett. Just like a bunch of people who like, you're always like, oh, I know that guy from that movie sometime, somewhere. And it's starring also a young Jeremy Piven uh, as one of the assistants or people who worked at the movie studios. And it's funny that Jeremy Piven, I think, has played the same character throughout all this time. Yeah. <laughs> um, because like I've watched Entourage and I actually kind of enjoyed it. And he plays like this asshole and he kind of comes off as an asshole in this. So like in I guess in the 20 years since he just kind of played the same guy every time was just less hair in every single movie <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah you can see him like he's almost like uh, testing out some of his material for the airy gold character on entourage yeah, yeah who, exactly. and airy gold is actually based on a real life studio mogul airy emmanuel who uh Rahm Emanuel's brother but anyway um but yeah that's it's that it, it which in a circular sort of way kind of comments on how you know everybody in Hollywood knows each other and there's there's really there's people are just like a few connections apart from each other in many many respects and I guess in a way that kind of that sort of fills in or colors the whole murder plot too because it it, it, it almost makes it seem like it's just a matter of time before somebody finds out what Griffin Mills did. It's very anticlimactic. But then the final twist is that actually he can get away with it. Yeah. (laughs) Well, just in like the most innocuous way ever, right? They just can't find a witness and, and the witness they do find ends up pointing out the wrong person who looks nothing like Tim Robbins. Who's like huge. eh? He's like six foot five or something like that. Right? Like he, like a guy of that stature is like unmistakable. But then even though the actual witness allows him to get away with it, uh, for the time being, he then the, the movie kind of concludes with a phone call that he's getting in his car phone from the person that he originally pissed off, the writer yep. whose uh, grievance kind of kicked off the whole story, even though this writer knows the facts of the case and could totally destroy Mills's life. Being Hollywood, they make a deal for some seven figure sum so that uh, a movie can be made about it. And so newsflash. The movie that we are currently watching is the movie that those characters are planning to produce together. How meta, eh? Yeah, they not only cover up the the actual murderer that 
the characters perpetrated, but uh, managed to enrich themselves by doing so. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just like profit through crime. I mean, if there is a line between like how corrupt and immoral Hollywood is, that's probably like the biggest example. Yeah. So yeah. so Altman said that this film is, quote unquote, very mild satire. I didn't always get the satire bit of it. Like, I, I get he's kind of poking fun at certain things. And it's kind of hard to tell, too, because you're talking about the scene where, like, people meet and have lunch and they kind of cold greet each other saying, like, oh, I'm a big fan. Let's work together sometime. And people just are like, OK, yeah, whatever. I mean, yeah, 90 yeah. percent of the time it doesn't come true. I wonder if that's actually how it works. Like, I have no doubt that it happens, but I wonder if movie uh, execs and writers just like run up to people and start pitching things. I wonder if it's uh, probably not that easy anymore because there's all sorts of security and, and whatnot. And everything's done through email anyway. But sure, sure. Uh, well, I think it's I think it's probably Altman kind of reflecting on some sort of some kind of flaky encounters that he's had before. Like Fair. the fact that the movie does it a few times suggests that it's it's clearly something that annoys Altman um, mm -hmm. and maybe maybe the movie kind of exaggerates how often it actually does happen to your point mm -hmm. to me it sort of suggests that Altman was just a little bit annoyed or bitter you could say because you know in the 70s he had a very up-and-coming sort of career and he had a number of hits and then in the uh, in the 80s, it, it all kind of fell apart for him in a, in a way he, like he had a lot of uh, critical and commercial flops. And clearly he he seems to hold producers and studio heads uh, a lot in contempt for that. You know, he seems to he's, he's taking the side of the writers, the people who kind of risk it all by going into these meetings and trying to grab the ear of some influential producer and then just being brushed aside. He, there's definitely, I think, a bit of Griffin Mill in him for sure. Like, yeah, because there's this part where Larry Le Levy comes in and he's like, well, why do we hire all these creative people when we can just like come up with movies on our own? Just read the newspaper. Yeah. Uh, take some news piece and, and fictionalize it. And Tim Robbins, answer is like, well, if you're going to do that, why don't you just direct and act in your own movie as well? <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was a funny comeback and also very true. And um, I can see where. Altman gets a little salty. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Before Griffin Mill meets June, like the girlfriend of Vincent D'Onofrio's character, he's dating this story editor, um, Bonnie, who's by all means, by like all, all accounts, like a, probably like the best and straightforward and most moral character in the movie. Yeah, and she's the one who seems to have the the most kind of like investment in movies as art as opposed to commerce. Yeah, well, well yeah, like at least one with like the best moral compass uh, played by Cynthia Stevenson. And she's kind of brushed aside at the end. And I wonder if that's a proxy for anyone. Uh, I mean, I, I could sort of see Altman kind of dividing up his personality amongst a couple of these characters. Yeah, probably. Yeah. So I feel like in some way, Bonnie kind of represents like the artist in him who wants movies to be this kind of ideal who, you know, that the, their truth and uh, they don't, you know, they, they represent quote unquote real people or realistic people. So that's why she has her kind of protest at the end of the movie, though she's in that screening room and she, she hates that they've, the movie that they're testing out has had a new ending shot that's more uplifting rather mm -hmm. than the kind of tragic one that was originally written. Right. Um, so I feel like there's a bit of Altman in her, 
But like you said, she's also put forward as being this nice girlfriend, this nice woman who uh, there's no good reason for Griffin Mill to leave her in favor of June. Well, she's the idealist who gets curb stomped basically by Hollywood, right? In every single movie. I wanted to talk about also the opening shot, the tracking shot. Oh, yeah. So only in recent years have I really paid attention to tracking shot. And it's maybe because Hollywood wants me to. Because I remember in Birdman, everyone made like a big deal of the tracking shot. And before that, you didn't really realize it because we didn't have like the schizophrenic cutting that we get these days. (laughs) So you kind of appreciate it more. But I didn't realize that the tracking shot thing has just been like a very contentious issue since... I don't know when it first was introduced, like, what, 50, 60 years ago or whatever it may be? Right, yeah, like, well, roughly, if you're talking, like, really um, in-your-face kind of flashy long takes like that, actually, maybe Jaws, really, because there's a lot of long takes in Jaws that get very well hidden, kind of the way Altman does here, where it's a long take where there's no cuts, but he's moving the camera into classic framings and then pulling it out again. So he'll go like clo- in tight on a close up and then slightly wider to a two shot and then like a super wide shot and then he'll move the camera in. So what you're seeing is a series of um, tr- quote unquote traditional looking shots, but they just don't cut in between. And Spielberg does that a lot in Jaws and you don't notice it because in your mind's eye, you just see it as individual shots. Yeah, that that actually bugged me a little bit. The constant zooming in and out. Yeah, it's not for everybody. Yeah, some people get kind of motion sick. Yeah, it's almost too obvious what he's trying to point out. But the point being is that I had no idea tracking shots. Actually, if you look at old movies too, because just of the way the stage is set and how few cameras they have operate, yeah. everything tends to be a longer, longer shot anyway. Yeah. It was never deliberately meant to be like a tracking shot as we know it now. Um, and usually it's it doesn't move as much anyway. Like it doesn't move with the characters from, you know, one setting to another character in another setting so seamlessly. Yes. Yeah, it's usually the, the long shot is usually two characters or a couple characters in one scene and they the camera kind of moves around, but it stays in that one setting for for most of it. Right. Right. And so I was a little surprised that, you know, Altman obviously made such a big deal of this tracking shot and self-references uh, the tracking shot in another sort of meta moment where he's like people in Hollywood were just too obsessed with this stuff. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and I, I just think it's really funny because I had never thought it was a big deal. I always thought, you know, it was it was it's a good technique when it's used well. But I can see why, you know, some people think it's really pretentious sometimes. It it really like toes that line sometimes. Yeah, because it's a, it's a major show off moment, because if you have a long one and especially a long one with a lot of complicated blocking and props and action happening, mm-hmm. the like the challenge on set is that it can take hours to capture them because you have to rehearse every little tiny detail of it. And if one thing goes wrong, you have to not only move the camera back to where you started, but replace all the sets and clean everything up and fix all the costumes and hair again. So it's kind of like a, one of those power moves that a director can make. And sometimes it's, you know, the, the resulting impact on the audience is kind of like, oh, they're just showing off, not like this is the best thing for the story. I, and I think people kind of describe this movie as not very, as good nature satires because it never really skews any one person. They all kind of just redeem themselves or they they end up reaching their goals. Well, except for maybe Bonnie. But like it, it like unlike other satires where it really like digs in the knife and then twists it, 
this doesn't really do it. It just kind of pokes at you a little bit. I mean, you could say that it more it's more so skewering an entire industry. So the the impact is sort of spread out over thousands of people, but it's kind of all sort of, if not skewering, then just sort of roasting a little bit. <laughs> right. Well, like compared to something like, say, Jay and Silent Bob Strikes Back, where they'll where, where they're outright say, God, I hate how fake Hollywood is, you know? Was it uh, Shannon Darty going, fucking Miramax? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, you could say that Kevin Smith is not, you know, his lack of subtlety is actually a bit of a knock against him because he has, True. It you can know, be. he has no, he has no ability to kind of, um, deliver that in a, in a softer way or a way that doesn't, doesn't call attention to itself. So, right. But I think when I look at satire, I'm looking for something more caustic mm. and maybe that's why Bowfinger kind of, I appreciate Bowfinger more. Uh, not only was I, was I a kid when I watched it, just the way they skewed people, it was not subtle at all. People describe the player as sort of a dark thriller. I never got that feeling. I just thought it was a funny sequence of events that were patched together very seamlessly and very well. But I never got the feeling of, you know, wow, like, ooh, this is exciting or ooh, this is scary, you know? It's more like localized to certain sequences, like the... The parking lot sequence. The parking lot sequence or like a little bit later on when he's being interrogated and everyone's laughing at him, like that's... <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I think that has to do with the acting, though. Yeah. Because Tim Robbins is kind of awkward anyway. And D'Onofrio plays a really good, crazy person. Yes, yeah, hundred percent. So, so I, I think it has to do more with the acting than the tone, or the setting, or the script itself. This kind of reminds me of Gosford Park. Have you ever seen that? I've always meant to see it, but I haven't gotten around to okay. it. Okay, yeah. So, so that's a Robert Altman film. That's more sort of like a murder mystery film, right? And that I think has the same problem. When I first watched it, I appreciated how tightly woven it is and how subtle everything is. But you never got the feeling that, you know, someone was in imminent danger or that was that it was particularly suspenseful. Right. But I think that's just his style. Like he's kind of awkward, subtle, very low key, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. And you get that, too, in uh in the player when like Lyle Lovett's character is tailing Griffin. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, because you're, you're never you like the movie encourages you to believe it kind of lays a bit of a red herring there where it, it encourages you to think that Lyle Lovett's character is the writer that is chasing Griffin mill. But also Lyle Lovett is just a funny looking person. So I never took him seriously. Yeah, he's, just, <laughs> he's always in the background kind of hunched over. He's got that crazy, you know, eighties hair going. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I was just like, okay, this guy's just a weirdo. Like he doesn't scare me at all. I think yeah. he is, he has more personal issues that he should worry about than trying to solve a crime. When they finally show you who he really is, like Lyle Lovett is not the best actor. Let's be honest. Like he's <laughs> okay, his, de yeah. his delivery in that police office scene is v pretty flat, and uh, he's very awkward. And I found myself wondering both when I originally saw it and again recently for for this episode, like why exactly they chose Lyle Lovett outside of the fact that he's recognizable and maybe Altman's friends with him. I I couldn't really figure maybe. it out. Maybe um, like he's got the like the sharp crooked nose and kind of the square jaw that kind of has a classic villain look. Yeah, I guess. But he looks more he looks more like a comedian to me. Like yeah. it, it's more likely that he says a funny one liner than he, you know, growls at you. <laughs> so I thought that was really funny. Yeah, but but to your point though, it's like he's so awkward and so kind of 
more funny than menacing that you don't really get a thrill necessarily from trying to figure out what he's going to do next. It's it's more of a... A miscast, it feels like. Maybe not a miscast, but more like um, they deflate the tension automatically or that they deflate the tension intentionally, I guess. Maybe for a joke. It's 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 subtle, like you said. It's... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I and I think this really feels like a 90s film. Like, it really dates itself, partly through the clothes. Yeah. But I think just the overall tone of the film. Like, 90s films, to me, were always not loud and flashy like films are these days. A lot of dialogue, a lot of facial expressions, a lot of, you know, interactions between characters. And because there isn't a whole lot of, like, flash and bang, it... I wonder if it's, you know, a little too boring to be marketed to today's crowd. There's very few shouting scenes. There's almost none that I can remember. Yeah, basically. But in any, like, drama involving, you know, big egos these days, like, you know, they really go at each other sometimes, you know? Like, the language they use and the tone of their voice, it's very um, aggressive and caustic. But you don't really get that here. Even Griffin Mill, when he's, you know, being sly... He's not always dealing from the bottom deck in, in, in the sense that I, I think even though he's playing the long game, he kind of lets things play out. Yeah. he He's not planning every which way. He's not like a master of chaos that we're so used to seeing these days where like every step of the way someone is getting sabotaged gruesomely sometimes. I think that's why the major kind of like transition, the one year later card that we get at the end of the movie kind of throws you for a bit of a loop because we go from uh, the previous scene is Griffin barely escaping because of the bad witness that the cops got Mm -hmm. to the very next scene, him uh, a total mogul and totally in control of things and, and uh, you know, brushing away Bonnie because she has ideals and things like that. And it feels like he's really like a lot has happened in that one year to make him feel very secure. And he's, he's clearly kicked out the, his previous boss. He's, he's made uh, Larry Levy into a, a subordinate, all this stuff. So he's really like, he's taken whatever power he got from dodging that murder rap and really built on it. Cause we never get the scene where Larry Levy goes from, you know, up-and-comer to Griffin Mill's underling. Yeah. Like, you understand that it happens because Griffin Mill had pretty much laid out his plan and obviously everything went according to his plan. But I always thought, you know, that it was missing that little piece that connects the two together, the epilogue one year later and and the, the end of the murder investigation. And I think that's why it makes the ending so jarring because it's almost as if, Altman ran out of time and just decided to to just like throw this last scene in the end and be like, yep, yeah, here you go. This is what happens. Yeah. Unless it's meant to to reflect like how quickly people's fortunes rise and fall in Hollywood. Like you can be a nobody and, and have like, you know, just be from some podunk nowhere uh, place in the Midwest and then become the world's biggest star because of the success of one movie. So I've, I've never read the the book, though. Have you? No, I haven't. No. In fact, this is the first uh, Robert Altman movie I'd ever seen. So I oh, I was okay. not familiar. Okay. Like I'd heard his name, you know, a lot of film critics had been using his name up until the point where I, like I said, I randomly got this disc in the mail um, and I, I recognized his name and of course all the names of the cast members on this disc. 
Um, so I I went in so blind that I I didn't wasn't even familiar with the rest of his filmography. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Did you? There were a lot of good performances in this. I I, I should say. Um, did you have a favorite? Because I I definitely do have a favorite, uh, and it's not D'Onofrio. Okay. I say that. Um, I kind I like I, I I kind of like the guy who plays the the studio boss. Um, who he was in Blade, the original Blade Runner. Um, I always forget his name. Um, he plays one of the replicants in the original Blade Runner. He plays this the studio boss. Well, it's not Rug- it's not Rugger Hauer. Like Griffin's Griffin's superior for the most of the movie. Brian James. Um, so yeah, I, I really liked him. Although I think maybe my favorite is probably Richard E. Grant. Oh, that's my favorite. Tom Oakley is hilarious. Every time he pitches his movie, it is so funny. Again, like I think Altman was pouring in a lot of like observation that he had done at other types of pitch meetings that he'd actually been in. Yes. Into this character, like the way this guy like is very lyrical and he he sets the stage and he doesn't, you know, the producers are trying to like snap their fingers and uh, force him to spit out what the actual logline of the movie is, but yet he he has to paint a picture for them. And then when the chips are down and the guy's actually got a film in production, it's funny how he immediately throws away all of his lofty artistic visions <laughs> yeah. in the screening room. He goes for the ho- yeah, he goes for the Hollywood happy ending that he was vehemently against. At first he was just like, no stars, just talent. And it turns out that the movie stars Julia Roberts and Bruce Willis, like two of the biggest stars at the time. Yeah. <laughs> and he's got those like big round eyes and the long hair, right? Yes. So he looks like a psycho person and he's so fixated on getting his movie made that he's just willing to go whichever the wind blows. The fact that he was so adamant about having this, you know, like this artistic vision of this film and that he suddenly turns so much in favor for this Hollywoodized version, I think is really hilarious. I can I've met people who are like that, who are vehemently against something and then all of a sudden, like something changes and they do like a complete 180. I think we all know someone like that. And it's just always so hilarious and funny. I feel like Altman had to have been in a room with at least like. 10 or 15 people and seen that exact thing happen over over the course of his years in Hollywood. And so there, I think uh, that that's that's a, a dynamic that is kind of at the core of the movie as a whole. Like it's really it's it's, it's a little kind of microcosm of of everything the movie is saying, which I think is really cool. Because I always imagine that's how, you know, first time directors or writers, you know, finally get this uh, big project from the studio and then they turn it into version. The studio's like, no, you have to do this. You have to do that. And then because the writer or director is so afraid of losing their job, um, they're just like, yeah, okay. Yeah, that's a great idea. Even though deep down inside, it's probably not what they had envisioned in the first place. So basically the exact opposite of what happened to Josh Trank on uh, fan four stick. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, basically. So I, I guess Tom would be the the complete opposite of Josh Trank. Yeah, yeah. Who's <laughs> a guy who like what destroyed several hotel rooms and uh, nearly like? Well, I mean, clearly Trank just kind of had issues he had to deal with. Yes, so. yeah. It can't it can't just be attributed to career stuff, but yeah, the same basic framing of like you know indie director plucked out of obscurity based on the success of a previous project goes into the studio system and gets all the edges worn down yeah um, <laughs> i also can i also say that i love the slogan of the I th- uh, is it an unnamed 
studio that they all work for. Yeah, it, it's 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 got a weird name. Like I feel like the slogan is the name of the movie studio. The slogan is movies now more than ever, which is <laughs> which is kind of like which you, is so you kind of stand there, you read it, and you say it to yourself, and you kind of wonder what it actually means. You know? Yeah, exactly. Which is why I love it. It's so vague and uh, non-specific, but I think that's part of the joke. So, <laughs> what do you think that means? Well, keep in mind this was made in the '90s, right? So Hollywood was going through like a huge boom in the '90s. Like where, you know, like you legitimately had a bunch of uh, studios that were throwing big money and lots of people were made into stars. Not that it didn't happen before, but the 90s was just a huge boom period. Uh, Yeah, I think it might have been it could be that playing into it. I think it could also just be like the further we go, like the 90s and beyond, the more corporatized the studios became. Like you were seeing a lot of mergers with like. TV companies like Time Warner, stuff like that. And 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 movie studios became less and less their own. Like they were the the top of the heap and they became assets within a larger corporate pro, uh, portfolio. And sometimes there would be like weird corporate mottos and stuff that really had nothing to do with movie making. But, you know, they still pretended like they they were, they were part of this golden era or whatever. Yeah, well, just like being the, the kind of money that was thrown at it, too, like with all the special effects and stuff right in the 90s. We got a lot of that. That was the era where we got a lot of uh, James Cameron stuff. Yes. Yeah. What, what did you think of the the fake movie that we see the this, this scenes from at the very end with Julia Roberts and Bruce Willis? I thought it was hilarious. I, I thought it was something we could have definitely seen in a 90s film. Yeah. Um, overly dramatic. Uh, you know, handsome guy saves beautiful girl at the end. Yeah. Totally unrealistic with the entire gas chamber and Julia Roberts just kind of <laughs> sitting there looking as if she's just kind of fallen asleep, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and Susan Sarandon and Peter Falk just sitting in the audience kind of with somber looks on their faces. Yeah. And it's like, where does Bruce Willis get the shotgun to shoot the glass window? You know, where does Bruce Willis get that hair? <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because uh, Bowfinger ends their movie on a similar note where they have like they're trying to get this movie made and this movie finally gets made and you see like what it would have been like and they tack it on at the end of the movie so structurally it's very similar i would really recommend bowfinger too it's uh it's very 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 funny i think one of steve martin and eddie murphy's best most underrated films i remember the posters up all over the local blockbuster when i was uh, in the 90s so oh, I, really i i have like images of the poster in my head but i've never actually seen a trailer or anything so okay so, well i think it's good to not watch the trailer actually and just go in blind oh, okay cool Noted. yeah because I, I i've never seen the trailer but i feel like some of the jokes would be used up in the trailer and it wouldn't be as funny Right. Okay. That's that's fair. Yeah. The one thing I kind of want to mention is that at the beginning of the film, when Griffin Mills is is taking all these writer meetings, and these great writers are pitching their ideas, and every sentence after the writer says something, uh, Griffin Mills be like, "Oh, okay, so it's a thriller. Oh, okay, so it's a it's a murder thriller set in whatever. You know, like he's trying to keep up, and then all of a sudden at the end of the day, he'll just go, "Oh, okay, so this is like I don't know, like." Reservoir Dogs meets, you know, some other film, you know, <laughs> like some completely uh, diametrically opposed film. And <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, oh. and then the writer's like, oh, I can get Julia Roberts for this. Yeah, exactly. It's like, exactly. <laughs> I thought that was really funny. And I, I wonder if 
if that's how people talk too. Cause I feel like people talk like that still, you know, like any new high tech company, they're always like, Oh, we're the Amazon of this. Oh, we're the Google of that. You know, like startup culture existed in Hollywood before startup culture was a thing. There's that great scene when, uh, Griffin mill and June Goodman's doter, uh, uh, Greta Scacchi's character go to the desert retreat. Right. And he's finally telling her something about, what his job is. And he describes his job as being like having 10,000 pitches a year to make a total of 12 movies. So that kind of puts in perspective, like how much garbage he has to sift through and how many of those meetings where it's just a writer kind of like, you know, jamming bits and pieces of unrelated movies together in an attempt to, you know, get a little bit of that Hollywood cash. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's right. So it kind of, I think, puts into perspective how difficult it is to make a good movie. You know, how many ideas, good ideas get laid by the wayside just because, you know, studios can only approve so many films and, and not everything may appeal to them. I, I think we've seen a lot of examples of that, right? Where where movies have been in like development hell or ignored for the longest time and suddenly they're a big hit. That's why I really loved um, back like after Sony Pictures got hacked by North Korea, um, <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. some of the some of the stuff that was downloaded and leaked as a cause, as a part of that hack made it into a couple of really good books. And one of them was called um, The Big Picture. I forget who wrote it now. He's a, I think he writes for Wall Street Journal. I forget the guy's name. Um, but he was he was analyzing all of the Sony Pictures stuff and he was going into the financials and kind of peeling back this layer and showing how. You know, out of even out of a movie slate for a given year, it's kind of striking to see like, all right, they will take a chance on this small fraction of this huge number of pitches. But even in that small fraction that actually gets produced, only another fraction of that is actually profitable. Mm -hmm. So it really like that kind of thing puts into perspective how like even in the 90s and before, like the prospect of getting something made was incredibly financially risky for any studio. And from that perspective, you can kind of understand how they can kind of uh, toss away potentially great ideas because they're too scared to take a, a big risk on something. But then yeah, that's why you need people like Griffin Mill to like take the writer's side. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess. Unless he's murdering them in the street. Yeah, but I mean, I guess that murder, murder wasn't that good anyway, right? Because the play was not something that David Cain yeah. wrote. Exactly. This this mysterious other writer that we we hear from at the very end. We never find out who he is or what his name is, eh? And I think the movie is better for it, but it also makes you kind of wonder like who would that person be? Like what their real life analog would be if they if <laughs> if if you asked Robert Altman like did he have an idea for who he would reference if that person was on screen? Just have some sort of like crazy stunt casting where like in a movie that's already packed with incredible cameos, like who is the coolest person that they could possibly get to actually be the the death threat sending writer? Who would it be? It's got to got to be somebody who stands out. I mean, they already have Jeff Goldblum in there in an uncredited cameo. He was cut, though, wasn't he? Like the scene was cut. In the, yeah, he, he pops up at the party held by Sidney Pollock's character. Right, right, right. Okay, yes. Okay, yes. I remember. Nicolas Cage is too much. He would steal, steal too much energy. Yeah, I feel like it's got to be someone who's like really recognizable, but is never that famous enough to like instinctively know the name. He's kind of one of those people where you're like, oh, that guy, I know him from somewhere. Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> Even like a Donald Sutherland type, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Donald, or I think it would have to be like younger though. Like somebody who's, who's clearly yeah, trying like, to establish their career. Maybe like Tom Cruise or something. Well, I was going to say like Guy Pierce. He's, he's a guy you kind of see everywhere and he always kind of plays these like psychotic shady characters. Yes. Yeah. I can see that. Yeah. Like final word on this for me is I, as I kind of hinted at the beginning, I very much enjoyed it. I mean, I love any kind of like insider Hollywood type of story. So it, um, it definitely hit a lot of the right notes for me on that. Um, love the casting, love the tight writing. Um, I totally acknowledge that if you are not quite as up on all of that Hollywood stuff, mm-hmm. you might find this kind of boring though. Yeah. So yeah. you kind of, if you're going to show it to friends, like I think you have to kind of gauge how into that stuff they are. Yeah, I agree. I, so that's probably why I probably enjoyed it a little less than you. I enjoyed it still, um, but it's not a movie I'd probably watch again at any point. <laughs> To be honest, oh no, okay. <laughs> I enjoyed it more the second time I watched it. Oh, okay, so. okay, yeah. So, um, just because sometimes I hate how self-referential Hollywood is, and and as I said before, if it's satire, if it's black comedy, I, I prefer it to be more caustic and aggressive, right? And and right. so this doesn't quite do it for me. Um, definitely, I appreciate Robert Altman's other works. Um, Nashville and Gosford Park. Gosford Park have been meaning to rewatch too, so maybe we can do that as a uh, bonus episode as well. Mm, yeah, because I, I think you'd appreciate that one. That one has a bit of a stagey feel to it. But yeah, thank you for recommending this movie. It's actually I didn't realize it had gar- garnered so many like awards and attention before that. So it, it's good that I saw it because clearly this film is kind of culturally significant. Yeah, well it seems like as we're always pointing out like whenever Hollywood makes a movie about itself, then all the critics and the uh, industry who's who start crowding around it and they're like oh yeah this is one of the greatest movies of all time like we saw it <laughs> yeah. with the artist uh, like 10 years ago or so um and yeah, then we saw, saw it with la la land like you know there's a bit of yeah. there's a rhythm there you know that's very yeah you know, some people find annoying but uh, i mean but whatever it's because these films are kind of made for them like taylor made for them like every little in joke they get. Sometimes a lot of these in jokes go way past the heads of the casual moviegoer. Yeah. Hundred percent, yeah, and and I mean, for me, it works most of the time. The one time that that a movie like this was made and it really flopped for me was something we've talked about here on the show. In fact, uh, Under the Silver Lake. Oh my god, <laughs> that was a frustrating watch for me. Incredibly frustrating, and wanted like that movie wanted to be the player in in many significant ways. Like it wanted to have that level of satire, you know, yeah, that's and right, film noir, yeah. and a lot of that stuff, but it just. It just fails. But you know, there are a lot of staunch fans of Under the Silver Lake. Eh? There are, yeah. And but I feel like they're the kind of people. I, I think I made this joke on Letterbox. Like they're the kind of people who are entertained by like the Galaxy Brain memes. Like they're like <laughs> right. okay, yeah, the insufferable part of the internet. They're the people who are like you know they do know something about the industry and they do know the jokes and the references, but they no, they always come off as knowing less than they actually do. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's whatever critique they have about the industry is more about like kind of teenage edge lord type stuff rather than anything like substantial. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're all up in this lingo. I don't. Some of this lingo and jargon is just over my head now. I'm way too old for this shit. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, like like basically like performative edginess or whatever. Like just uh, you right. know making a sh- making a show of being critical without having any substance. Right. Um. So. 
Yeah, that, that just was like, so uh, just like Elon Musk on SNL. Oh, okay, topical reference. <laughs> but it's true, right? Like that is peak, no, yeah, he, peak meme culture right there. Yeah, and, and arguably by like him taking memes into the the mainstream of SNL is kind of killing them anyway. Like you know, if if it's him doing it on national TV, it's kind of not a meme anymore, in my opinion. Wasn't Tim Robbins a SNL um, host or at one point? He must have been. Maybe. Right? I'm, I'm just talking about the material in this case. Like, if, oh, he's, okay. if he's basically, like, acting out a meme on SNL, like, that's... It's not internet anymore. It's it's kind of something else. Right. Well, my point was just to 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 say that, like, it seems like SNL is pretty desperate these days for any kind of attention. So if you find yourself in that kind of niche category where you you love Hollywood or love to hate Hollywood or some mix of the two, um, then seek this one out. Uh, it's available to rent on YouTube and it's on Criterion Channel as well as uh, available on the, one of the Criterion Channel Blu-rays. Um, so seek it out if you, if you meet that description, but otherwise you might want to steer a little bit clear cause you'll find it a little bit, uh, um, navel gazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A little tiresome, a little boring, but. And did we, did we decide what we're doing for bonus episode number five? No, we haven't, but we've got, we've got some choices, so maybe we'll keep that a surprise. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We have some back pocket stuff that we've been tossing around. So anyway, I think that does it for this episode. Yeah. So come on back uh, for the next episode uh, in a couple of weeks time. And until then, my name is Robert Snow in Toronto. And my name is Jason Chen in Vancouver. Thank you for listening. And we'll talk to you next time.